Tonight, God's word comes to us from the minor prophet Micah. We're going to turn to Micah chapter 6 and be reading just the first eight verses of this chapter. Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, what we hear now is God's word. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Here we end the reading of God's holy word. Well, we are turning this evening to the sixth of the minor prophets, meaning we are halfway uh, through this series at this point. And while looking for a text or a key verse to focus on in the prophecy of Micah, there are a couple different texts we could have chosen, but it seems to me Micah 6 verse 8 certainly has to be one of the key texts in the book. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And so we're going to look at chapter 6, the first part of chapter 6 this evening, as that sets the tone and sets the scene for the giving of those prophetic words. And the scene that is set is a courtroom scene. You can hear that by the language of the text. Here you mountains the indictment of the Lord. An indictment is courtroom type of language. There's there's an indictment being brought against the people of Israel. One goes to court when there is a a problem in a relationship. Uh, Going to court with someone means we have some connection to each other in some way, but something's happened to damage that. If you are uh, uh, driving on the highway and you happen to be allowing your speed to go up a little bit too far and the policeman pulls you over, now you have a relationship and you've got to go to court and the state will settle uh, what's wrong in that relationship. So the courtroom scene itself means these two parties 
have some relationship to each other. The courtroom is between God and Israel. And that relationship that they have with each other, we refer to as the covenant, the relationship between God and his people. And very simply, children, the covenant means God does something and the people do something. From God's side, he says, I will be your God. And from the people's side, their response is, and we will be your people. A very, very simple relationship. I will be your God, and you will be my people. A relationship together. But that relationship had been broken. Israel had broken the covenant, had broken the relationship. And so God is going to bring them into the courtroom. And Micah is going to function as that prophet in God's courtroom. Well, in a courtroom, there has to be a judge. Who is qualified to judge the case between God and his people? Well, certainly no one but God himself. He is the one who will serve as judge and, and talk about this break in the relationship and, and see who is at fault because of that break. God, in this courtroom, serves as the judge. And he has Micah, Micah come to, to serve as the plaintiff, the one who brings the complaint Micah brings the complaint on behalf of God. Uh, the uh, Old Testament prophets are sometimes referred to as God's attorneys. They are those who pursue the covenant lawsuit against God's people. The relationship has been broken, and the lawsuit is pursued by these prophets. Micah functions as God's plaintiff here, the one who brings the indictment against God's people. We have the judge, we have the plaintiff, the one who brings the complaint, and we have witnesses in the courtroom. Look how our text begins. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. The mountains are going to be the ones who are the witnesses to this trial and the witnesses to what has taken place. Now, why would the mountains be called as witnesses? The mountains are those enduring foundations of the earth. In other words, the mountains have been around forever. The mountains have seen it all. They have seen what God has done in the covenant. They've seen what Israel's done in the covenant. The mountains are those who have seen everything. They're a personification of someone who has seen all the evidence. And they are the ones who will, who will be witnesses to what takes place. These enduring foundations of the earth, these mountains, these hills, as a reminder, God is not quick to come to judgment, but the mountains have seen everything. From the beginning, they have watched what has taken place. We have God as judge. We have Micah as plaintiff. We have the mountains as witnesses. 
and there is the defendant. Verse 2, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Israel is being called to account. They are the defendant in this courtroom. God's own people being brought to account for their failure to keep the covenant. Now we have all the participants in place. God sits as judge, Micah as the plaintiff who will bring the complaint on behalf of God, the mountains as witnesses, and Israel in the defendant's seat. The stage is set. And so, so the charge is going to be brought. You see, with the covenant, one of the two parties is going to be guilty of breaking it. And the charge is going to be, Israel, you are the ones who've been disobedient. You are the ones who have broken covenant. But God brings that charge somewhat indirectly in verse 3. He says, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. In other words, one of us has broken the covenant, and it's not me. Micah says on behalf of God, look, the covenant's been broken, but it's not what God has done. It's not that he has wearied you. He's not the one at fault here. He has been faithful to his covenant. No, Israel, it is you. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I have not been unfaithful. And now God is going to bring evidence that he has continued to be faithful to his people. In verse 4, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. It's as if Micah says, look, here's exhibit one. In the courtroom, here's exhibit one. God redeemed you. God rescued you. God set you free just like he said he would. God was faithful to his word. God was faithful to his promise. There is a break here, but it's not what God has done. Evidence, exhibit number one, God was faithful to you. He redeemed you out of Egypt. And of course, in that, in that beautiful picture of Israel's redemption from Egypt, we get those foreshadowings of our own redemption, the redemption we have in Jesus Christ, God's faithfulness, not only to his people back then, but his faithfulness to us as well. Exhibit number one, God redeemed them from Egypt. Exhibit number two, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, in other words, not only did I redeem you from Egypt, but I instructed you, I taught you through Moses, through his assistants, Mary, uh, Miriam and Aaron. I taught you what was required. Moses was the one who would come and bring the law, bring God's requirements, bring the, the nature of the covenant to his people. God says, I instructed you. I told you exactly what was required to be my people. I did what was required so you would know how to live. He goes on. More evidence. Exhibit number three, verse five. 
O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. Not only did I redeem you, not only did I instruct you, but God says, except number three, I blessed you. I was a blessing to you. And he recalls to mind the incident of Balaam and Balak. Remember that story, children, of Balaam and Balak? Balak was this king who wanted to have someone curse the people of Israel. And so he goes to find the prophet Balaam and says to Balaam, look, I want you to go and curse Israel. And it takes some coercion, and Balaam finally says, look, I'll go, but I can only say what God lets me say. And Balak says, that's just fine, let's go, let's curse him. And so Balak takes Balaam where he can see Israel, and Balaam opens his mouth, and rather than a curse, comes a blessing upon the people of God. And it happens not only once, it happens only twice, but three times. Three times Balak says, I want you to curse them, and Balaam blesses them. God says, here's my evidence. I have not been unfaithful. I have blessed you. When the nations wanted to curse you, I brought forth a blessing. I redeemed you. I instructed you. I blessed you. And exhibit number four, he says, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Maybe if you're like me, you have to check your Old Testament ancient Near East geography to know where these places are. Remember, Shittim was the last encampment Israel had in the desert before entering the promised land. It was the last place they stopped in the desert. Gilgal was the first place they stopped when they entered the promised land. Even before going to Jericho, they were at Gilgal. And God says, remember what happened from Shittim in the desert to Gilgal in the Promised Land. What happened between those two? The Jordan River event, where God would bring his people miraculously into the land he had promised. God gave them miraculous entrance. He says, I fulfilled my word to you. This is my exhibit number four. I brought you exactly where I said, and even though I had to open up the river to do it, I brought you in. The evidence is stacked up against Israel. God says, I redeemed you, I instructed you, I blessed you, and I fulfilled my word to you miraculously by bringing you exactly where I said I would. It is not me who has been unfaithful. Answer me, O Israel. It is you who have broken the covenant. Israel tries to mount a defense. And as we read their defense, it is almost unbelievable. 
verse 6. Israel says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What they are saying is, God, we didn't know what you wanted. God, we didn't know what would make you happy. They claimed ignorance. Ignorance, although God had told them explicitly how they were to live and how they were to be his people. They say, God, we didn't know. Didn't know what you wanted. And they begin to throw out these, these, uh, these phrases. Shall I come before you with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Yes, they should have. That's what God required. But they said, we didn't know. Didn't know you wanted that. And then they begin to, to exaggerate. Uh, perhaps God's claims are, are a little bit unwieldy. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With tens, th- tens of thousands of rivers of oil? God, you're asking way too much from us. And then, then their defense, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, For the sin of my soul. Shall I offer my child as sacrifice? Now comparing God to the Canaanite gods who would require such sacrifices. Israel's defense is God, you weren't clear enough. God, we didn't know what you wanted. God, you're really being. a little too harsh on us because we just didn't know what would make you happy. You can almost imagine Micah as he's witnessing this, this trial, this courtroom event. And he says in verse 8, He has told you! You claim ignorance? He has told you, O man, what is good. God did tell them. He spelled out exactly what he wanted. Israel's defense, we didn't know. We didn't know it would make God happy. God is not the one to blame here. It is Israel who knew and refused to do what God wanted. He has told you, O man, what is good. And as we hear... Israel's response, we didn't know. And we are somewhat incredulous that they would make this claim. We, say, we, 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 we see this same type of defense being used today to justify disobedience to God and a breaking of the covenant. We hear voices today still telling us the word of God is not clear. If God had only spoken more clearly on these things, we would know how to act. We see that with regard to to social issues. This month, this month of June, this pride month, a disgrace a debauchery. And it doesn't surprise us that the world acts that way. But when the church 
begins to condone and embrace such a vile lifestyle and say, if God was only clearer, we wouldn't do it. God's word's not clear enough. This same, this same type of defense is being used today to cover up our sin, to cover up our iniquity. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What is the response that should be given to God? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The response when God calls us up short in this covenant lawsuit is, is actually very simple. It deals with our relationship with our neighbor. It deals with our relationship to God. We're to love God above all. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. With our neighbor, <clears throat> we are to do justice and to love kindness. A theme that you find throughout the minor prophets is a lack of justice being done. The rich got richer on the backs of the poor. A lack of justice for God's people. Now they are to be just, kind, compassionate with each other. They are to care. They're to be concerned for one another's welfare. This is what God requires, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and, and to love God above all. What does God require? To walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly. Walking, walking is a very regular, ordinary activity. I like to go for a walk uh, in the afternoon. Um, Sometimes my schedule gets too busy, but I like to take a walk. And it, it, you know, when you, when you go for a walk, it kind of clears your head. And if you see somebody walking, you don't really take note of it. There's some, somebody walking there. Running, running is noticeable. I don't like to go for a run. I don't like to go for a run at all. You see somebody running, you go, what's going on there? But walk is very normal, very regular, almost expected. What does God require? That we walk humbly with him. A regular, ordinary, ongoing relationship with our God. Sometimes, I think spiritually, we try to run. We say, you know what, I'm going to finally get serious about my devotional life, and tomorrow I'm going to spend an hour reading the Bible, and then I'm going to spend an hour in prayer, and then I'm going to spend an hour singing the Psalms. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to really run for God. And maybe we do it for a day, and maybe for two days. But then we get weak, and we stop. God calls us to walk. Just, just, just every day. Spend some time with me. Doesn't have to be an hour. Every day, spend some time in my word. Every day, spend some time in prayer. It's regular. It's ordinary. It's expected. Walk humbly with your God. And that word humbly is connected to the idea of walk carefully, walk circumspectly, walk in a way that is willing to follow God is willing to follow his leadership, willing to follow his direction, willing to walk in his path, being careful to keep the laws that he has given. This is what God requires of his people. He's told you, 
What is good? What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Israel was brought into the courtroom. Israel was brought before the judge God. Israel was brought into the courtroom. We also will be brought into the courtroom of our God, a God who is above reproach, a God who has been faithful to us. And as we, as we <clears throat> look at our lives in relation to him, our, our keeping of the covenant, if we're honest, we have to say, it's not that God's been unfaithful. It's that we have chosen to disobey. We have chosen to go our own way. We have failed him. And God would be absolutely just in his judgment to bring the gavel down and say, guilty, guilty, guilty. No one could charge God with being unjust. But there's someone else in the courtroom as well. God is there as judge, the prophet as the plaintiff, the mountains as witnesses, Israel as defense, but there's someone else in the courtroom. There's the counsel for the defense. There's the attorney for the defense. There's someone who speaks on behalf of the, the defense an advocate who takes up their cause. John 2 verse 1 tells us that advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He stands before God as an advocate, one who speaks in defense of the people. And although God would be perfectly just to judge his people for failure to keep the covenant, Jesus Christ speaks on their behalf. He speaks in their defense and he says, rather than punishing them justly like they deserve, instead of punishing them, I want you to punish me instead. He is the one who speaks for the defense. And he takes the full wrath of God, his anger, his judgment against all the sin of all of his people, and God declares him to be guilty of all those transgressions. And therefore God looks at the defense and says, therefore I declare you not guilty. He's taken the penalty. He's taken the punishment. I now see you as innocent, as if you'd never committed a single crime. When we enter the courtroom of God, if we try to speak in our own defense, God, we didn't know, didn't know what you wanted. God, you're so uh, uh, unrealistic in your expectations. If we speak in our own defense, we have no expectation other than be de declared guilty. But when we know the advocate, when we know Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is there speaking on our behalf. Do you know that defense attorney? Do you know that advocate? Does he speak for you in the courtroom of the Almighty God? 
If you're going to try to stand on your own, you will not stand but fail. No, God once again tonight calls us to put our faith in the one he has sent to take away our sin, the one he has sent to fulfill the covenant on our behalf, to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, that we might be freed from the condemnation, freed from the judgment, free to go and to serve him, to now out of thanksgiving do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God. Micah prophet in God's courtroom, the one who who accuses the people of God on God's behalf. And yet Micah's true indictments pale in comparison to the words of the defense attorney, I will take the punishment that they might be set free. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we are so thankful for what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We recognize, we acknowledge that left to ourselves, we would be justly under your condemnation now and for all eternity. Oh, we thank you, O Lord, that we have an advocate. We have one who speaks in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous. We pray, Lord God, you would not look upon our sin, but you would look upon him you would look upon his perfection, you would look upon his finished work, that we might know the assurance of salvation, that we might now in love and in gratitude seek to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly in your ways. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.